As we get into um, the book of 2 Samuel today, we are looking at the life of David. David is best known for, most likely, if I said David and, you would probably say Goliath. Okay, Uh, maybe a couple of you would throw a couple of other names out. Maybe some of you would say Bathsheba. We'll get there um, soon. Um, If you haven't heard that story, we'll get there. But David and Goliath, we think of this high watermark in David's life. We think of how he conquered this giant through the power of God. And we, we look at this story and we're amazed by it. And we ought to be. But one of the things that I think is um, fascinating is how people or organizations or nations rise and how they fall. If you look at human history, very cyclical in nature. You have kings that come onto the scene and they build this empire and then you find a generation or two later, one of their descendants is incompetent (laughs) and the whole thing just crumbles and falls apart. Um, But you know what's really fascinating is sometimes it doesn't take the next person in the line to actually drop the ball. Sometimes what we see is an individual that has this potential, that that they do great things, and and it's amazing. And then yet at the same time, within that same individual, not only is there potential for great success, but also for great failure. And today, as we look at David's life, what we're going to see mostly today, 80% of it, is we're going to see, wow, David, he's this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. But what we're also going to see is that David is merely a picture of the Savior, not the Savior himself. You see, in David's life, there was this meteoric rise. But there was also a catastrophic descent. And so today, we're actually going to be, I don't mean to be pessimistic going into this message, because today we're actually going to see what's probably the high watermark in David's time as king in Israel. We're going to see probably the most uh, expansive the kingdom of Israel has ever been under David's reign. And so what we see as we begin to enter into 2 Samuel, a couple of weeks ago, we finished with 2 Samuel chapter number 7. Today, we're in 2 Samuel chapter number 9. In 2 Samuel chapter number 8, what you actually find is that David went about and he brought all of the land that God had promised Israel into Israel. So under Saul, under the judges, the early days of David's reign even, what you find is you find that Israel, God had promised generations before, I'm going to give you this land. And he draws out some distinct borders and barriers. But during the time of the judges, Israel never claimed the rest of that land. During the time of Saul, Israel never claimed the rest of that land. It's not until 2 Samuel chapter number 8 that Israel actually goes out and does the things that he is supposed to do and that Israel was promised to do. And so what we find is we find that in this first season, you see chapter 8, verse number 1 even, David defeated the Philistines, the primary thorn in the side of the Israelites. We see that he subdued them and that he took cities out of their hands. 
and that he did the things that God had set before him to do. Even if you fast forward, you find in verse number 14 of the chapter, he put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so we see this even rest given from the enemies of Israel. But what we find next is that this rest is not um, mean that there's nothing that there's nothing left to do. Because in fact, now that there was rest, it's time for David to keep promises that were made years before. This story, in fact, at the beginning of it, this might be, might be the most Christ-like that we see David in all of the scripture. And as we get into the story, what we're going to see is we're going to see a man who is incapable of providing from himself, from a lineage, a family history that's unworthy of any good. A man that is broken, a man that is insufficient, that is poor, living in an unimportant place. But we're also going to see a king that remembers his promises to those who should have been his enemy, even when it's costly to him. As we begin this, let's look at verse number one. We're going to read just down through verse number three to kind of have an understanding of what's taking place in chapter nine. After David subdues his enemies, verse nine, David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? So Saul is the previous king. Saul is the guy that was king before David. They are only relatives through marriage. Saul had other sons that were killed in battle. He had other uh, descendants, other places. And so now David comes and says, is anyone left of the house of Saul? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. About a month ago, we looked at David and this man, Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul. In fact, he was the heir to the kingdom of Saul. But God said, David, you're going to be the next king. Jonathan will not be the king. And yet in spite of this, though they should have been enemies, David and Jonathan were the best of friends. And so he says, now, is there anyone that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. Remember that name, Ziba. Um, Of the new people that we are meeting within this, um, there's an easy name and there's a hard name. Ziba's the easy name, okay? So remember Ziba. Now this servant of the house of Saul, his name was Ziba, not a relative of Saul, a servant of the house. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, and watch what he says here. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And so what do we see from David? First, we find that David's asking this really interesting question. Is anyone from Saul's house left? Is there anyone still alive in Saul's house? Now, this isn't an unusual question. This is an unusual question for kings to ask. Uh, When there is a transition, especially in this culture, when there's a transition from one family to the next in leadership, oftentimes what you would have is you would have that new king coming in and say, okay, who's left that could be a source of contention within the kingdom? 
And what ungodly and wicked kings would do is they would say, okay, who's left of my enemy's family? They would get identified, and then that king would go, and he would make sure they weren't a threat to the future rule. And so I think Ziba in this moment begins to hear this and say, okay, he's gunning for the house of Saul. He's gunning for these individuals. Watch his response. He says, yes, but he's a cripple. Yes, but he, he doesn't, he's, he, he's not a warrior. He, he can't go out and fight. He's not a threat to you. And I think what we're seeing in Zeba, and we're going to learn more about Zeba as we go along. I think what we're seeing in Zeba is we're seeing Zeba take what he thinks and put it onto other people. Ziba is a man that we're going to soon discover, uh, we're going to call him devious. I think that's an appropriate word for him. And because he is devious, he's kind of assuming that David is the same way. But what we're going to learn is that Ziba takes his cues from the culture, not from God. And so Ziba says, oh, there's this, yes, there's a descendant, but he's, he's crippled. He's not going to be a threat to you. And at this time, Ziba is stewarding the house of Saul. So the things that were left from Saul's family, Ziba is the caretaker of all of these things. We don't know where all of the prophets from Saul's land and these um, certain ventures that any wealthy individual at the time would have had. We don't know where that's going specifically. Maybe it was going to David. Maybe Ziba had it in some kind of a trust fund. But whatever it was, Ziba had some influence and some affluence as a result of his position. But you know what's interesting here with David? As David begins to ask this question, You know what we don't find in the scripture? We don't find anyone knocking at David's door saying, hey, when are you going to keep your promise? We don't find anyone coming and saying, hey, David, when are you going to do the thing that you said you were going to do? But instead, David is the one who goes out and he has made a promise to Jonathan. If you go back into 1 Samuel, he made a promise to Jonathan. And now he says it's time to make good on that promise. And so watch what David does. The king said to him, to Ziba, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, behold, I'm your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So what does David do? David says, Mephibosheth, that's the other name. Remember I told you Ziba was the easy name? He says, Mephibosheth, I'm giving you back everything that belonged to you and to your father. Everything that belongs to your family, it's going to be yours. You see, David had made a promise years ago to Jonathan. 
And what we find here is this beautiful picture of Jesus. We see a promise that is kept. And this ought to remind us of another king that always keeps his promises. In fact, Jesus is the king that always keeps his promises. What has God said or how has God come and spoken and it's not been kept or honored? What has God ever spoken and issued? You see, in God, there is not a difference between his saying, his promising, and his actual doing. Isn't that incredible? In God, when he says it, it's as good as done. And so God has spoken. And if you go back even all the way to Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, chapter number three, we find the same chapter that man has sinned, Adam and Eve, they have fallen from grace. This, they were made in the image of God, a perfect reflection of his glory, and yet they were broken as a result of their sin. And you know what's incredible? Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. God makes this promise. And he says, listen, listen, Adam, listen, Eve. I am going to, through your son, you will have a son, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will bruise the serpent's head. The very first time in the scripture that a promise is made that there will be one who would come and destroy the greatest enemy that we have. Thousands of years later, enter a man named Jesus. A son of man, yes, book of Luke is so emphatic. Jesus loves to call himself the son of man, but he's also the son of God. And what does he come and do? He comes and he destroys death. He breaks the bonds of sin, crushes the enemy through his own death on the cross. Yes, he is bruised. It even looks like a fatal blow to the enemy. But three days later, he raises again. And so we find this God that keeps his promises being beautifully pictured here in David. But not only do we see Jesus as the king that always keeps his promises. I want you to look for a minute here at Mephibosheth. Look for a minute here at Mephibosheth. Because the king says, where is he? Well, first we really learn about him is that there's a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Uh, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter number 4, if you want to read through this passage on your own, Saul, Jonathan, many of Saul's uh, family members, especially his sons, are killed in battle. The tide begins to turn against uh, Saul's family. And so Saul's family does what tended to happen when those in power lost power. Uh, they fled. They ran away. They were afraid of enemies coming in and killing or maiming or capturing them to turn them over to someone else. And so what we find in 2 Samuel chapter number four is we meet a five-year-old Mephibosheth. And this five-year-old Mephibosheth, um, if you're not familiar with five-year-olds, they don't run very fast. They're not in a hurry very often. And so what we find is that there's a caretaker, there's a, a a caregiver who's watching over Mephibosheth and, and she decides it's time to go. And so she picks up this little Mephibosheth, begins to run, and somehow, we don't know exactly what takes place, but somehow he falls and he is injured in his legs. His legs are broken. And from that day forward, 
Mephibosheth is crippled, unable to walk normally, unable to function normally. And so we find this individual, as he falls, perhaps he was dropped, his legs are broken, and they don't heal. And so now he is a refugee from his home, living in a land called Lodabar. Lodabar. Funny name for a place. Uh, literally, it means this. It means the place without a pasture. So, so here's, here's how we could interpret this today. The place without a pasture. Um, this is a place that doesn't have anything, even a pasture. When I was um, very, when I was young, um, my, my, some of you guys know this, my father is a pastor um, in Ohio. Pray for him. He's a missionary. Okay. Um, some of you get that. What we see is, um, but when we were, when we, when I was young, um, he was uh, praying about a possibility of moving our family to a small town in rural Indiana. Um, and as he was praying about this possibility, um, he, he was speaking with an individual at this church and he said, you know, uh, I got a family. I want to make sure that there are opportunities for my kids. And can you tell me a little bit about the city? His response was, I'm not kidding you. The response of the individual um, from the church to my dad was, well, we have a Walmart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, I guess. Um, and we ended up moving there. Um, and it was great. And God worked and did his thing. It's, it was beautiful. Um, but listen, um, this would be maybe in our vernacular today. That town doesn't even have a Walmart. <laughs> Okay, there's no pasture in this town. Imagine a city of only pastures. Well, that's the middle of nowhere. This is if you go past the middle of nowhere a few miles, then you find Lodabar. And so Mephibosheth, he is living out in exile within the borders of Israel. Uh, he, he was way far away from his home. He was up north, whereas his family's inheritance was near Jerusalem. Uh, he, his family was of the tribe of Benjamin, which is down in the southern portions. He's nowhere near the things that belong to him, where his inheritance ought to have been. And so what we find is we find this lost and broken man named Mephibosheth. Does that remind you of anyone? Because if it doesn't, I'll give you a hint. You should look in the mirror or the selfie cam or whatever you want to do. Because the fact is that as we look at Mephibosheth, we have no choice but to examine him and say, whoa, that's me. You see, you were lost and broken. Maybe you're sitting in here today and you still are. All of us are still broken to some degree. We still have this sin that we fight and we battle against. But what we find here is this man, Mephibosheth, that was so far away from where he was supposed to be. He was broken and incapable of getting himself back to where he was. And so often, don't we feel that way in our lives? Where you just say, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? God, it hurts. Why? God, I don't see a way forward or a way out. What are you doing, God? I just have to wonder how many times Mephibosheth wondered those same things. How many times did this Mephibosheth, as he grew up, he could remember a time when he was able to run around and jump and play. He was five years old. 
He did the things that five-year-old boys do. Chaos, right? We don't know a lot about Mephibosheth's personality. But what we do understand, he's a five-year-old boy, and now he can't walk. The, the wealth that his family had is gone. The place that he was living where he would have had servants and friends and all these things, now he's, he's, this, he's basically in exile. No one wants to befriend Mephibosheth. They're afraid if they befriend Mephibosheth that David's going to come around because he's a descendant of Saul. We don't want to get too close to that guy. And so he remains in exile, far away from the king. But you know where you were, or maybe where you are without Jesus? You're lost, and you're broken. You see, sometimes I've heard people talk about faith and Christianity. They say, man, you know, faith just seems like a crutch. Yeah, and your legs are broken. Does the righteous man need faith? Well, a righteous man doesn't need Jesus, but you know what the fact is? The Bible tells us there's none righteous. So you know what that means? You need Jesus. You wouldn't make fun of someone who had a disability for using a tool to help them. Here's what I'm telling you. Spiritually, that's you and that's me. We're Mephibosheth. We're broken and we're far away from God. We have no ability to get to the king ourselves. And the fact is, is that often in those spaces, we feel lonely. We feel exiled. We feel like we're in the middle of nowhere. But here's the thing. Even as you were lost and broken, or maybe you are lost and broken even still today. You've never placed your faith in Jesus. David keeps his promises. Because we see in verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. And so not only does... Well, really, what, is it, what does he do? What does he do? What's actually happening here? If you go back, it's 1 Samuel chapter number 20. If you want to write it down in your notes, you can study it later. David and Jonathan are speaking. It's a very tumultuous time within Saul's family. This is Jonathan's father who was king at the time. Jonathan and David are speaking in 1 Samuel 20. And Jonathan says to David, he says, David, please, when you're king, show love to my family. And David makes this promise here with Jonathan. Then watch what just took place here. In 2 Samuel chapter number 9, he says, verse 7, do not fear. Don't be afraid. I know you're concerned about what's going to happen. You just imagine the trip Mephibosheth is taking now, going from Lodabar to uh, Jerusalem, the capital. Can you just imagine the anxiety? Hey, the king wants to see you. As he comes in here, David has to say, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father. And what does he say? I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. What does he do? He says, here's your land. Verse number nine, we're going to see that he gives them servants. He says, Ziba, you're obligated to Saul's family. This man is Saul's family. Therefore, you're obligated to him. But he also says this. He also says this, watch. You shall eat at my table 
always. Fast forward for just a second, down to verse number 11. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, watch this, like one of the king's sons. Who's the table for? Is the table for servants? The table's for sons. When God goes, or when God goes, when David goes to Mephibosheth, does he say, hey, Mephibosheth, you'll be like one of my honored servants. Is that what he says? No, he says, hey, you're my son. You're my son. Did he deserve to be a son of David? What did Mephibosheth done to earn the ranks? David was treated like a son of Saul, but what did David do? David killed Goliath. David was a mighty warrior. David was beneficial to Saul. What did Mephibosheth do for David? What did Mephibosheth do for David? Nothing. Nothing. There was nothing that Mephibosheth did to earn this placement. He wasn't born into his household. He he hadn't been so righteous or so good or so wise or so strong. He had none of these traits. But neither do we. Neither do we. You see, as we stand before God or as we live our lives before God, there's nothing that we can go to and say, oh, God, look how good I am. God, look how strong and mighty I am. Listen, you might be strong and mighty compared to the other people in this room, but that's like, uh, that's like being a giant compared to an ant. That's not a thing. We're down here, and God is transcendent so far above. And so Mephibosheth, what happens? He's brought to David's table. But man, that so ought to remind us of what John writes about Jesus. Chapter number one, he says this. As many as received him, Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You see, Jesus died so you can be a child of God. Jesus died so you can be a child of God. Your sins can be forgiven. The wrongs that you have done against God, the ways that you have fallen short. Jesus says, hey, I came so that those could be made whole. I came to, what did Jesus do every time he met someone who was lame and he was crippled? What did he do every time? He heals them. And that's just a foreshadowing of the spiritual healing that you and I have available to us through Jesus Christ. Amen? And so what we see is we see Jesus, he's this this better David. Whereas here's the thing, at the same time, Mephibosheth hadn't done anything against David, right? He pictures us in so many ways, but he's an incomplete picture. Mephibosheth never rebelled against David. He never picked up a sword and chased after David. But you and I in our sinfulness... We do that to God. In fact, the book of Romans tells us that we are God's enemies when he sent Jesus to save us. And yet, Jesus died so that you can be a child of God. What we see in this story is just this beautiful, beautiful picture of both the mercy and the grace of God. The mercy and the grace of God. Now, mercy and grace 
are these complementary ideas. There's a difference between them, but they go hand in hand. Mercy is when someone has done wrong and the, the punishment, the consequence of this is passed over. That is mercy. So if you were to go to a store and to steal something from that store and be caught and the store owner were to say, hey, you know what? We don't want to press charges. That's theirs. That's called mercy. You deserve something different, but you didn't get what you deserve. Grace is being given something that you don't deserve. So when you and I uh, are weak and fragile and broken and far from God, and yet God chooses to send his son Jesus to die for our sins, that's the grace, or watch this, the undeserved, unearned favor of God. And so what we see is we see David going to Mephibosheth and saying, here is grace, here is mercy that you and your family don't deserve, but I am giving it to you anyways. And what a beautiful picture of God this is. Watch with me. As the king speaks to Ziba, in verse number nine, he says, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. And so he's saying all the, the abundance that comes from this is going to belong to Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all the Lord, my Lord, the king commands, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And watch verse number 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Just a reminder, now he was lame in both his feet. Chuck Swindoll, um, well-known pastor, influential Christian, he speaks to this Mephibosheth and David's table, and he, he speaks about how with a little imagination we can understand what maybe David's table would have been like. And as we understand David's table, I think we ought to get a better picture of God's table. You can imagine the, the table of a king, a wide, expansive dining experience with gold and silver fixtures, lofty hand-carved wooden ceilings, and a spacious room. As the call for dinner goes out, you have the son of David, Absalom. Absalom we're going to meet soon in David's life. Absalom was handsome. Long, dark hair, a warrior, Absalom, well-respected among the armies of Israel. You find in the middle of this, his beautiful sister Tamar, this daughter of David that was renowned for her grace and for her beauty. Across from them, you find maybe the, the brilliant Solomon, the studious young man that would soon become the next king of Israel after the death of his father, David. And even as the call goes out, as they begin to gather, I think towards the end of this gathering time, you begin to hear a sound coming down the hall. 
a clump, a knock, as wounded and crippled Mephibosheth makes his way to the king's table. But you see, as Mephibosheth comes alongside these members of David's family, he sits down, and the way that uh, Dr. Swindoll calls this, the way that he says this, the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. You see, as Mephibosheth sits down at this table, he's not counted as an outsider. He's not an accessory. He's one of the sons. Once he sits down and he goes to this table, he's just like everybody else in this room. He has been adopted by the king. See, as we look at this grace that's demonstrated, what we're actually seeing, so we're seeing a couple of responses to grace. We find a response to grace from Mephibosheth. That's a beautiful response. Jesus gives promises to the bruised reed and the flickering wick. But you know, as we come to God and our brokenness, the first step is admitting that we're broken. Admitting that we're insufficient. Admitting that we don't have it all together. Because what does the scripture say? It says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The ones who acknowledge truthfully their position. You see, when you come to God, you don't have to pretend you have it all under control. You don't have to fake it till you make it with God. You don't have to put on airs and appearances and say, I have to act like I have it all together. Listen, you don't have to be strong for God. You didn't have to get your salvation through being strong. He is strong for you and in spite of you. And in fact, God often does his best work through weakness. And so if you want to be strong and you don't need God, good luck. Because the fact is, is we're broken. As we look at David, especially in this season of David's life, what had David in years before, what was David's attitude towards King Saul? What was David's attitude towards the way that he was treated by others? What did he say constantly? What have I done to deserve this? When Saul says, hey, come marry my daughter, what does he say? He says, I don't deserve to be the king's son-in-law. In fact, you know what's really fascinating to me? Um, Mephibosheth, what does he call himself um, when David makes this promise in verse number eight? He says, who am I that the king should regard a dead dog? You know, there's one other person in this story that has in the past called themselves a dead dog. Anyone want to guess? David. It's David. But David had received, what's the word? Grace. The undeserved, unearned favor of God. And because David has received grace, David now is giving grace. Hear me, Christians. Because you have received grace, you can give grace. Oh, but they don't deserve. Duh. It's literally in the definition. If someone deserves grace, well, that's an oxymoron. It's not grace. 
Grace is literally what someone doesn't deserve. And so here, if we say, I deserve or they deserve, what? No. You have been given a blessing that goes beyond your ability to repay. You have been given something that you can never give back. And because you have received that grace, you can give grace too. See, the fact is, it's only grace because it's undeserved. But Ziba, Ziba doesn't get this. You see, if you fast forward, we're going to hit this really quickly. This is just a really quick warning, church. I want you to have this. 2 Samuel chapter number 16. Ziba now finds an opportunity. He understands the grace of David. He understands the goodness and the kindness of David. And so now in chapter number 16, Absalom has begun to stir up. This is the son of David. He's begun to stir up a rebellion against his father, David. And so what we find in chapter 16, David has passed a little beyond the summit. Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple donkey saddle, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, a skin of wine. By the way, if Ziba has all of this stuff, who does it belong to? Mephibosheth. Okay. He's a servant of Mephibosheth. So he's bringing Mephibosheth's stuff to David. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? So where's Mephibosheth? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Whoa. So David's hearing Mephibosheth is sitting in Jerusalem. He's saying, ah, my time has come. I can become the king. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my Lord, the king. And so Ziba supports David during Absalom's rebellion with Mephibosheth stuff. Tells David Mephibosheth has betrayed him. But fast forward just a couple of chapters here. More plays out, and I'm going to ruin the story for you. Absalom is killed, not by David, but Absalom is killed. And then as we come to chapter 19, verse 24, David now feels it's safe to return to Jerusalem. And so he comes back to Jerusalem. And what happens? David begins to pardon his enemies. Really beautiful thing, by the way, right? He shows grace on the people that had just betrayed him. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. So this crippled man, son of Saul and Jonathan, comes down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. So Mephibosheth, um, he's not looking so good, right? Unkempt, filthy. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Mephibosheth, why did you not go with me? Remember, what had he just been told by Ziba? Oh, Mephibosheth's waiting for you to die. He answered, my Lord, oh king, my servant Ziba deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. So what's he saying? He's saying, Ziba left me behind. Ziba abandoned me. Ziba took the stuff and ran, and I couldn't do anything about it. 
He slandered your servant. It's my Lord, the King. But my Lord, the King is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the King. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the King? So what's he saying? He's saying, I'm not complaining about any of this. I just want you to know the truth. King, since you've been gone, I haven't cut my hair. I haven't even trimmed my toenails. If that's gross, it is. Yeah. He hasn't even washed his clothes. I haven't bathed. I've been so distressed and depressed while all of this is going on. I haven't even cared for myself. My king, I'm just glad you're alive. But what we see is we see this treachery of Ziba. How he has tried to align himself. And he sees an opportunity to gain influence and power. And so he does so. And he uses deceit and manipulation to get in on the grace that David has shown. And I want you to understand this with me. What we kind of see in this picture is we see a godly man gives grace to his enemy. While a wicked man does evil to his friends. What did... What did Mephibosheth ever done to Ziba? Hadn't Ziba's family always been taken care of? What did he ever? But when Ziba sees the opportunity to take advantage, he betrays Mephibosheth. And even here, though, watch Mephibosheth. I love this spirit within Mephibosheth. I think here at the end of this story, we find a godly Mephibosheth, a mediocre David. I'm going to show you why, and a wicked Ziba. Because what does Mephibosheth say in the middle of all of this? As all of this goes on, he says, Mephibosheth said, uh, let's see. And the king said to him, verse number 29, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Did Ziba deserve the land? No. David had already made this decision. It's going to look bad. And so he said, you guys can just divide the land. What's Mephibosheth? He says to the king, oh, let him take it all since my Lord, the king has come safely home. He says, I don't care about that stuff. You showed me grace. I don't need the things that I can get from you. No, he cares more about the king that gave it to him than the stuff that he had. Here's what I want you to understand. As we look at all of this, grasp with me that only the broken are invited to God's table of grace. Only the broken are invited to God's table of grace. You see, God didn't save you and I to sit in our sin. He didn't save us to be in denial over our sin. He saved us to free us from our sin. And as we look at the way that David treats Mephibosheth, He doesn't go and look for the most worthy men in Israel to sit at his table. No, he goes out and he finds the crippled man who lives past nowhere and says, you, you are my son and you are going to feast here. The same invitation is given to you and I by a better king. A king that although he had a heavenly home, he abandoned it left it behind to come and dwell with us. He came into the sinful world. And what did he do? 
lived sinlessly, and then gave his life for us. Today, you say, I want in on that grace. Can I tell you this first step to it? Know you're broken. Admit you're broken. Christianity is not for perfect people. In fact, I would say quite the opposite. Christianity is for individuals who understand their sinfulness and desire to follow after Jesus who came to free them from it.